1: I've always been attracted to edges. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by John Hagel. John is an author, strategist, management consultant, and entrepreneur with more than 40 years' experience. After retiring as a partner from Deloitte, he released his latest book, The Journey Beyond Fear, that addresses the psychology of change. And he is developing a series of programs to help people navigate through change at many levels. John works with companies and people who are seeking to anticipate the future and achieve much greater impact. John is widely published and quoted in major business publications, including The Economist, Fortune, Forbes, Business Week, Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, as well as in general media like The New York Times, NBC, and BBC. While at Deloitte, John was the founder and chairman of the Silicon Valley-based Deloitte Center for the Edge, focusing on identifying emerging business opportunities that are not yet on CEO's agenda. Before joining Deloitte, John was an independent consultant and writer, and prior to that, he was principal at McKinsey & Company and a leader of their strategy practice, as well as the founder of e-commerce practice. John has served as Senior Vice President of Strategy at Atari and is the founder of two Silicon Valley startups. We discuss John's new book, The Journey Beyond Fear, and its three pillars, a narrative, the passion of the explorer, and learning platforms. We cover how the the elements of the book serve as an extension of his earlier book, The Power of Pull, how small moves, smartly made, can set big things in motion. I really appreciated John's perspectives regarding the need for lifelong learning, and why we need to cultivate leaders that don't rely on threat-based narratives. I love John's framing. If we all came together, imagine what we could achieve. You can find out more about John and his latest book at his site, www.johnhagel.com. And for more links, uh, please see the notes in the show description. It was an honor having John join me on the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. John, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Oh, boy, (laughs) how much time do we have? (laughs) Uh, You know, I I think at the end, I've always been attracted to edges. um, And they take many different forms, but they're areas where opportunities I find are likely to emerge first. And so if you venture out into an edge, you're more likely to see opportunities before others. And then to help people anticipate those opportunities and act on them. I think not just anticipating, but the key in my experience at least is unless you act, you're not going to achieve impact and, um, and learn from the action. So that's been something that I think defines the part of my life for sure.
1: Excellent. Th- thank you. Your interest in the edges. Do you, if you looking back on your life, do you know where those interests kind of emerged or really started that you, you found, found the edges to be a rich area to investigate?
0: Well, it goes way back into childhood, I guess. Um, when I was very, very young, um, even in elementary school, I was already reading science fiction novels and really attracted to the notion that the future, when I was growing up, science fiction was all about opportunities in the future. It wasn't kind of this negative science fiction that we see today. Um, But no, it was the notion that looking ahead, there are extraordinary opportunities that will will emerge and uh, that will benefit us. And then the other piece, so that was looking ahead. The other piece is for, again, since a very young age, I've been very drawn to history and understanding the history of the human race and how we got to where we are today. And uh, while it's certainly complicated, I think that um, one of the key uh, themes that I see in, in the history of the human race is accelerating improvement of performance on many, many different dimensions, you know, health and wellness. And um, it's just, you know, we can get caught up in the short term kind of challenges. And certainly through history, we've had downturns. that, but guess what, they were followed by upturns and the the progress continued. And so I, I've come to really um, believe that the opportunities are continuing to emerge. And that's why we need to uh, venture out on to edges to, to anticipate them.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that because yeah, I feel like what you're describing too is, is if, we, if we take the time and perspective to zoom out, we can see an overall uh, kind of positive progress line on what the human race has been able to do or accomplish. Want to jump in a little bit to some of your work uh, recently uh, that I, I find fascinating. Uh, Maybe about a decade ago, you were really uh, being explicit about the notion of uh, pull versus push. And I feel there's strong themes from your work that now have emerged in or or extended in your latest book, The, the Journey Beyond Fear. Uh, if you don't mind, can we jump in a little bit first to The Journey Beyond Fear and talk a little bit first on... Uh, why you even took the time to, to, to write the book, right? Why fear, it's so important the way you framed fear. And then I'd love to get into the, the pillars, but if you don't mind starting with why fear is an important topic right now.
0: Yeah, no. Um, I, I say that the catalysts for my writing this new book were, were twofold. One, most of my career in business has been in business strategy. I was taught to believe strategy is everything, you have the right strategy, you win. Over the years, I've come to see that it's less about strategy and more about psychology, that if we don't understand the emotions that are shaping our choices and actions, the best strategy is just going to sit on a shelf somewhere. And so I've become more and more focused on understanding the emotions of the people that I'm dealing with and that are involved in whatever situation I'm involved with. And Then the other catalyst, and I emphasize this was three years ago when I started to write the book, it was not in the recent past. Three years ago, I was traveling around the world as part of my work and I was struck that everywhere I went, the dominant emotion that I was encountering was fear. At the highest levels of organizations, lowest levels of the organizations, out in the communities, fear was the dominant emotion and I think it's understandable. I think there are reasons. And I should say when I talk about fear, I mean everybody's got fear of something like spiders or heights or whatever. <laughs> I'm talking about a fear of the future, you know, basically afraid of what's coming and you know, trying to hold on to what you have and protect what you have because the future is terrible. And um, so I I again I, I I think it's understandable. I think there are forces that are shaping that fear in our global economy and society. On the other hand, I think it's a very limiting emotion and I think the key for all of us, the opportunity and need for all of us is to make this journey beyond fear by finding and cultivating emotions that will motivate us to act in spite of our fear and achieve much more impact that's meaningful to us.
1: Thank you. Uh, and I know on an individual level, thinking about fear from a psychology perspective, again, not not maybe a fear of spiders or fear of heights, but fear as an emotion, right? As a primary emotion, it then it has a lot of negative secondary emotions that we actually see, right? Whether that, you know, that's that's anger or 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 bad behavior that we might see, and also how my fascination kind of from a, with your work related to organizational design, too, is is uh, how much that can chain out in an organization, right? When when the negative sides of fear are demonstrated, even at a leadership level. Right. Yeah. What that what that signals or, or serves as a cue to others can have a a, a really kind of damning uh, effect to to holding us back.
0: No, I think it's, a, again, very challenging. I, I you know. Part of the challenge, again, I'm going to generalize, but I think broadly the case in large institutions around the world, we've been taught to leave our emotions at home. When you're at work, just get the job done. Do the tasks that you've been assigned, deliver the results that are expected. Don't be distracted by emotions. And (laughs) unfortunately we're human beings and we can't leave our emotions at home. Our emotions are with us all the time. And if we don't understand those emotions, and if, if again, as as I believe, where people in our organizations are increasingly driven by fear, we're never going to achieve the impact that we aspire to achieve. And so, I should say too, I mentioned anger. One of the pushbacks I get from people is, um, you know, well, I haven't heard many people express fear to me. And I say, well, you know, that. It's understandable because we live in cultures where expressing fear is a sign of weakness. If you say you're afraid, you're a weakling. So very few people want to even express it to themselves, acknowledge that they have the fear, much less share it with others. So they find other emotions. And I believe actually a lot of the anger that we're seeing around the world today is driven by fear. If you go underneath that anger, it's because they're afraid and they're expressing it in an emotion that's strong and that's acceptable versus you know just saying i'm afraid <laughs> so
1: thank you thank you and this this might not be uh in line so uh, obviously feel free to to correct me from your your perspective but i i also related to that i feel like uh when on a design and innovation side, some that we see our, our best work in teams when people are able to bring their authentic self to the table and to that is is vulnerability and where I've seen. Uh, in, in my own experience uh, mentors of mine that have demonstrated vulnerability seems like a level of social emotional maturity that signals to the rest of the team it it's okay to express that because sometimes we're afraid an idea might not be the best idea. But we, again, to your point, we don't want to express that. We don't want to look like a a weakling or we might just want to, you know, go along to get along. Right. And that power though, I think of being able to bring your authentic self kind of fear warts and all can really actually at the, at a longer term scale have much more productive outcomes.
0: No, I think that's a starting point, but it's very challenging because I, I go into a fair amount of, uh, detail around some of the consequences of the emotion of fear, and one of the consequences is erosion of trust. You know, if I'm afraid, you may seem like a nice person, but I can't trust you. I, you could it really do damage to me, so I can't express vulnerability, so it becomes kind of this vicious cycle that the, the less you're willing to express vulnerability, the less trust there's going to be, and that and unless you're going to be willing to spread them. So you just get right. into the doom, doom loop that I think is very challenging.
1: Thanks. Backing up a little bit, too, when you said uh, you started writing this three years ago and just thinking about uh, a few of the ma- major changes we've seen, both in the States and globally, you know, a, pan- a pandemic like that we haven't really seen or at least seen in a century uh, globally, uh, supercharged politics here in, in the States, right. And it's just a really interesting time. And I, I feel like what you've outlined, it, it's only reinforced by some of the things that we're are coming to a head today. How, how do you feel? Uh, I, would you agree with that, that it's?
0: It's certainly, I think, intensifying the fear, right? What I challenge, I, I think, increasingly that I'm hearing this sense of, oh, when the pandemic goes, our fear will go with it. And we'll be back to good, healthy emotions. And, you know, my, my strong message is the fear was there long before the pandemic. It was intensified by the pandemic, but it's not going to go away because the forces that were shaping that fear are still at op, in operation. And right. One of the forces is because of all the connectivity we've created around the world, small events in some faraway place in the world quickly cascade into extreme disruptive events that leave us scrambling to figure out what to do. Dare I say pandemic, but I think pandemic is just one example of those kinds of extreme disruptive events. And so I think we, we need to be prepared that there are gonna be more extreme disruptive events. And yes, that could generate fear.
1: Yeah, thank you. Because I, I, I'm feeling too, just some of my conversations, even what we're seeing with the delta variant right the the i think there was almost this false hope that hey we're out of the pandemic and now it, it maybe that was just i don't know the first inning of a nine inning game we don't we don't even really know are we halfway through it are we through but i, I appreciate that kind of uh maybe maybe a sense of false hope that as soon as this is done we're we'll be fine it will go back to normal uh but it's it's really just more symptomatic of these deep root causes that are uh Making things worse.
0: I, um, uh, I was just going to say too. You mentioned the political uh, environment. I I do believe one of the key drivers, uh, uh, intensifiers of fear, is increasingly again around the world in in politics. The the leaders have fallen on what I call threat based narratives. It's all about. The enemy's coming to get us. We need to mobilize now and resist, or we're all gonna die. And that feeds the fear, right? Oh my god, we're gonna die. <laughs> okay, I'm right to be afraid. And you know, I keep asking, where are the politicians, the leaders who are articulating what I call opportunity-based narratives, where they're saying there's this incredible opportunity. If we all came together, imagine what amazing things we could achieve. You know, I, I'm still looking for them. I think that you know they're needed, and and we'll get very positive response if and when they emerge. But I think um, it's it's feeding the fear, and I think that's another reason that there's so much fear.
1: That it's interesting that you had said that. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of my work focuses on uh, collaborative sense making and wayfinding. How do we understand what's going on? How do we get a path forward and so somewhat related, but at, at MIT, their leadership program, they call it the four cap or four capabilities and uh, sense making being one of those. But another one is relating and then another one is visioning. Right? And to like what what about a positive narrative where we might come together that, you know, be our best selves uh, <laughs> to to address these and, uh, yeah, sadly now, I mean that you said that I am struggling with who might be in a dominant leadership position where we do see positive narratives, opp- opportunity-based stories that might, you know, mobilize rather than the, the, the threat-based narratives that you mentioned. Uh, it's a really, really compelling question and, uh. I I think I'm a little more scared now. Maybe there's a little bit more fear now that I've heard that, uh, that, that struggle digging into the journey beyond fear. I uh, really appreciated the conversation you had recently with Ed Morrison uh, for strategic doing uh, conference. And, and to your point too about complexity interconnectedness is also the time scales. It seems that we're working on are much different maybe than uh, a generation or a two ago, when it comes to like strategic planning, you could have a great plan. It could be handed down from on high and the world didn't change that much while it was uh, moving through the. City. But now the world's ever changing while we're working on these. And you have uh, three compelling, you call pillars related to these. And I just want one, I want to make sure I have them right, but I'd love to step through these is one is you talk about narratives and we kind of hinted at that but narratives not stories which is uh an important component passion as a pillar but and and really focused on the passion of the explorer uh and that that mindset is is powerful and then also platforms related to to learning uh but not maybe in a traditional kind of uh database set where there's already existing knowledge it's really about creating new knowledge so before we dig into those deeply, how how did your your work when you were synthes, you know you're analyzing and synthesizing, then you kind of came up with these these three pillars as as, as maybe framing mechanisms. Where uh, where did those come from to settle on those three?
0: No, it came from. Part, partly the book is a personal memoir so I talk about my own journey beyond fear and what helped me along the way and the lessons that I learned and certainly these three pillars were critical to my progress and success and uh, but then it's it's amplified and supplemented by research that I've been doing for decades now where I've been looking for you know what can help uh, cultivate emotions that will, uh, allow us to achieve much greater impact and overcome the fear. And so I ended up focusing on these three as the ones that seem to be most powerful in, in that journey.
1: I appreciate that. Thanks. I want to dig into, if you don't mind, just kind of go through them in order. Uh, and, uh, you and I had a, a brief conversation earlier where one, rhetorically, one of the things that really kind of, uh, woke me up, made me, made me think, kind of, uh, raise an eyebrow and, and dig in was the, the notion of narratives and you are, uh, 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 very intentional that it's narrative, not story, but if you don't mind talking about why narrative and, and also where stories might be problematic in this framework.
0: Yeah, no, I think that, um, most people in my experience use stories and narratives to mean the same thing. It's, They're synonymous. Um, I'm trying to make a distinction that I think is important. Um, But for me, a story is self-contained. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. The end, the story's over. And the story is about me, the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined. But it's not about you. You You can use your imagination, figure out what you would have done in the story, but it's not about you. So that to me is what stories are. On the other side for narrative, the distinction for me is narratives are open-ended. They do not have an end yet. There is some kind of big threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's gonna be achieved or not. So there's been no resolution yet. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices your actions are gonna help determine how this resolves. So it creates a sense of agency that I think is very powerful. And I, I certainly believe stories are emotionally very engaging, but I make the point that throughout history, millions of people have given up their lives for a narrative. They have made the ultimate sacrifice for a narrative. And so I think that there's extraordinary power there. I will just say, too, I'm not in any way dismissing stories. I think stories and narratives can come together in some very powerful ways where you you, you frame a narrative about, and I'll talk more about the opportunities in the future, some big inspiring opportunity and the call to action. And then if I can tell some stories about some people who have already started to take some action and the progress and impact they've achieved, now that starts to give the narrative more credibility because it's not just some fantasy. There are people who are actually doing something here. This is exciting. Let me get involved. And the stories become more powerful because they're not just isolated stories. They're part of a much bigger narrative, much bigger opportunity that's yet to be achieved. This is exciting. So anyway.
1: Yeah, you know, that's great. And yeah, thinking about the narrative, I want to just uh, 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 pull on one of the threads too that you t- the sense of agency and thinking about um, some of the downsides too, as you're talking about fear is like, if there's a woe is me or I already see how this ends or this, you know, like the way I'm hearing what you're saying too is uh, this story doesn't end well. And, and I don't have any or much power to influence it, but if it's, if it's a narrative, that's not finished and you have agency, but now, now what, what might I do? if, if I feel I have a sense of, of control or influence or, or at least yeah not necessarily control, right. But I can positively impact the future. It sounds a lot more, uh, uh, engaging. It's you know, that it, it to your, you said call to action, right. But that, it that's something that, uh, frankly can stir the soul, right. And, and, and get you moving.
0: No, absolutely. It's, you know, I, I lead with the narrative as a pillar because in my experience, it can become a significant catalyst for people to make that journey beyond fear. If you can start to frame a really inspiring opportunity where they can really make a difference, now you're starting to address that fear. They can make a difference, and there's a big, really great opportunity. Let's come, and it's about coming together. It's not just about doing this yourself all by yourself. It's that we can come together to achieve this opportunity and so that, again, helps to overcome fear. I'm not just alone doing this all by myself. So.
1: Thanks. And I'm, I'm painting, I'm admittedly painting with a broad stroke here, but thinking about sometimes like looking at stoicism in sometimes the, what might be the negative things can just be seen as a challenge. Like if you, if like, you know, that you could almost be grateful that this challenge was presented to you, but you do believe that you can uh, overcome that is, is, to me, there's kind of a positive component there as what that I'm hearing in this. I don't I don't know if you know, I'm not telling everybody to be stoics and just you yeah, know, but <laughs> but I have I've seen in stoicism sometimes when the great challenges are presented, it, if if you also frame that as an opportunity, right? That that here's here's yet another challenge where we can demonstrate agency, where we can demonstrate our best selves. Uh to me, it does sound uh, incredibly powerful. So I just, and I, I apologize because I'm reacting to it. Cause you're, you're like, yeah. of course I wrote it. This is great. But just, <laughs> you know, as you, as you step through, I I really see that the power in kind of the the narrative isn't finished and there's a lot of opportunity for the individual in there. Yeah. When you uh, moving to the next pillar uh, and uh, I really appreciate this, what you, you talk about passion and then more specifically the passion of the explorer. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Or could you walk me through with kind of the, yeah. the explorer passion?
0: Yeah, so I, again, a challenge that I face is everybody uses the word passion. In my experience, if I'm in a workshop and I ask everyone to define what they mean by passion, I get as many different definitions as there are people in the room. <laughs> there That's is right. no no one definition of passion. The The specific form of passion that I'm focused on comes from, again, research that I've been pursuing, as well as some of my own personal experience. But what I was looking at in the research was trying to find environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement. If we're in a world of mounting pressure, where can we see sustained extreme performance improvement? And what what can we learn from those environments? One of the things I found, despite a very diverse set of environments, everything from business environments to extreme sports, The common element in all those environments was the participants had this very specific form of passion. And I I focus on three elements in the passion. One is they have a long-term commitment to making an increasing impact in a domain that's exciting to them. So they're not just there to be in the domain, they wanna have more and more impact. They're driven to have more and more impact. Second element is they get excited when confronted by unexpected challenges. This is an opportunity for them to learn and have even more impact. This is wonderful. And then third element is when they're confronted with those unexpected challenges, their first reaction is who else can I connect with who can help me get to a better answer faster so that I can have even more impact? And combine those three elements together. And I really believe it's, I call it the, uh, the fuel that will help us to, in the journey beyond fear. Once we find that passion in each of us, and I believe we all have that passion waiting to be discovered and developed, um, we will have the fuel necessary to act in spite of fear. Um, And by the way, I will say too, it's in spite of fear, I'm not in any way saying the fear goes away. The example I like to give is I've spent a lot of time with big wave surfers and There's surfers surfing out to ride this incredible wave. They know that they could fall off the the board, but even more importantly, they could die. People have died surfing those waves. They're afraid. It's reasonable to be afraid, yes, but they're still paddling out because they're so excited about the opportunity to do something that hasn't been done before and to learn from that. So they're just driven to have more and more
1: in yeah, th- th- thanks. It, and as you're saying that, uh, especially the uh, almost the that questioning disposition or like when they're confronted with some an unexpected challenge, uh, uh, I have a fair number of of, of of friends that are microbiology and virology researchers. so this's been an exciting time for them. And one of the things i've I love about their conversations is, when they talk about an experiment that didn't go as planned yet, it's like, but you could see an excitement, right. That, the like it, it almost unlocked new, new ways to think about something. Like for a second they might scratch their head, right. What was that? But it, it's not like they, they throw their career away or this was, this was not worth it. Just the way that they continue to explore that there might be something even more interesting beyond that is uh, for me, it's like really interesting when I see, you know, you've talked about extreme sports, but also different craftspeople who are just always, always working on on getting better, and and yet the outside world might already call them a master crafts person, and okay. yet they they still feel like they there's yeah. so much more to learn or do. Absolutely. The uh, the connecting disposition, I feel like that blends in a little bit to the the third pillar with learning uh, that uh, there a little bit of a dovetail, but the as you said that they they're looking for others that might have um, had a similar challenge or almost like might have another piece to the puzzle like they they feel like it's not complete there might be more Uh, am I am I off on that uh, on that connection or does it does it kind of blend into the seeking new knowledge
0: no you're absolutely right I think all three of these pillars are connected I think the, the narrative can be a catalyst for the passion of the explorer. Passion explorer ignites that desire to learn and connect. And how can we do that? Well, there's learning platforms. So, absolutely, I think that's that's part of the power of this. Is they are they are very much reinforcing each other.
1: Yeah. So, l- digging into the um, uh, the notion of the learning. Platform and again, you are specific and intentional on uh, making sure that this is about creating new knowledge. It's it's not just pulling old old knowledge, but could you kind of walk through why that's so important?
0: Yeah, and, uh, everybody talks about um, you know the the, uh, the online video courses and workshops that you can do online and. That's great, you know that's but that is learning in the form of sharing existing knowledge. We're just listening to somebody taking notes and applying it in our own lives, and that's again, not to dismiss that that's important, but in a world that's more rapidly changing every day, interesting observation, what we know today becomes obsolete at an accelerating rate, and that the only way to thrive, even survive is to learn in the form of creating new knowledge that didn't exist before because the world is changing at such a rapid rate and so to me that's the key um, uh, imperative we all have and again if you're have the passion of the explorer you're excited and driven by that kind of learning that's the learning you want to do something that hasn't been done before that will you know be new knowledge and so to me, again, everybody talks about platforms. You know, the world is ruled by platforms today. I believe there's a for, a type of platform that does not yet really exist and will be extraordinary in terms of addressing an unmet need as we start to cultivate this passion. And that's this learning platform. And a key theme here, it's all connected, unfortunately, yeah. so, um, is that Again, based on the research that I've done, the learning in the form of creating new knowledge occurs much more rapidly if we come together into small groups. I call them impact groups, anywhere between 3 to 15 people, no more, because we have to develop deep trust-based relationships with each other and know each other very deeply in this group and be driven to act, it's not just a discussion forum where we're talking, we're driven to act and learn from the action. And so these learning platforms have as the core unit of the platform, these impact groups, they provide shared workspaces for these impact groups to come together and develop feedback loops so they can, uh, learn much more rapidly, but then, um, connecting these impact groups into broader networks on the platform so they can learn at scale. And uh, accelerate the learning at a very rapid rate.
1: Thanks. Uh, I related to that. One of one of the things I've, my personal perspective that I've seen as a challenge, is the label I'm giving it is has been transactional learning. For a long time, I feel people felt like I went to school, I got this degree, or I did this, I got this certificate, and almost feeling like they should be done. Right, but to your to your point, right that the world keeps changing, knowledge becomes obsolete, and I'm thinking about the the book right now. The author's name is escaping me, but the half life of facts. But right, is mm-hmm. that things that we took as truth uh, have gone away, or their are importance or relevant of even certain things that we know and and yet another reason to drive to how do we help give people skills to to have more of this. I would say, like you you said, the, that passion, of the explorer mentality uh, and improve learning that it's for me, it's not it's not just learning a thing. It's how do you continue to learn and understand or how do you continue to make sense of these environments that aren't that do keep changing, right? Like that you, you explore a wider system. You have to create new knowledge to make sense of it.
0: Yeah, and I would say, I mean, in the business world, certainly one of the key uh, buzzwords these days is lifelong learning. We all have to learn throughout our entire lives. Everybody talks about, all leaders talk about this, we need lifelong learning. In my experience, very few, if any, talk about what's the motivation to do that. Lifelong learning, that's a lot of effort. That requires taking a lot of risks. Why would you do that? And if I push, if I challenge the leader, The answer I'll get back is, oh, fear. Because if you don't do lifelong learning, you're going to lose your job. So start learning, get with it. And again, while I believe fear can be somewhat of a motivator, it's not the most powerful motivator compared to people who have this passion of the explorer, who are driven to learn, who are excited about learning, who need that learning and want it and will pursue it at any expense. And so that's, I think the, the challenge and in business, again, I'll just say um, the, uh, the number of organizations that actually even uh, tried to assess the passion of the people in their worker, workforce is close to zero. I mean, it's you know it's all about worker engagement. And again, definitions differ and all that. But worker engagement is typically, do you like the work you do? Do you like the people you work with? And do you respect the company you work for? That's an engaged worker. And there's evidence that engaged workers perform at a higher level than non-engaged workers. But where is the drive to learn and the excitement about change? Actually, engaged workers can be resistant to change. No, I like what I'm doing. Don't change it. Don't, don't right. mess with it. You know. Versus the passionate workers saying, "Let's change. We can have even more impact. We need to change." So anyway, I think it's a, an interesting question: is what's this motivation to learn? It's so important. And
1: and as you said that, especially like as it might be, uh, um, you know, leaders talking about lifelong learning. Uh, the as you said that, one of the things that came to mind is I'm really curious in in uh, especially mid to large size enterprises what are the incentive systems that they've actually put out to, to contribute to lifelong learning or uh, what are the behaviors uh, and right? Because at the end of the day, I feel like in organizations, you get the behavior you incent. So I'm more, like, what are the incentive systems that do show that uh, one that you can be vulnerable? I, I don't know everything. I want to learn more in this area, but also what are the systems in place to even facilitate uh, an engaged employee ongoing learning? I'm just curious if, if, when you talk to leaders, do you push them on some of those? Those,
0: oh, totally. The, no, I, I think that it, it has many different dimensions to it. I, one issue is, um, again, when leaders talk about learning, they're typically talking about training programs. Go to this training program at this point, then the next training program, then the next training. It's all about sharing existing knowledge. It's not about creating new knowledge. The way you create new knowledge is in the work environment, not in a training room, but in the work environment through action together with others. And that's missing in most large organizations. And one of the things that, again, I I just look at leaders today, one of the key messages that leaders communicate in a world of increasing pressure driven by fear is failure is not an option. Deliver as forecast, as predicted reliably, without failure. Guess what? If you're creating new knowledge, failure is essential. <laughs> you're gonna fail. You're not gonna always succeed. How do we create environments and workspaces where failure is respected and, and acknowledged and, and welcomed because as long as we're learning from the failure. But but again, I think, and, and another, just, I'm sorry, there are so many different dimensions. Another element here is the kind of learning of creating new knowledge. Leaders will say, oh, that's in our research lab. So that's over in our innovation center. But everybody else needs to just do their job, you know, reliably and efficiently without failure. I believe that the learning that we're talking about here, lifelong learning is for everyone in the organization, whether you're a janitor taking care of a facility or procurement person dealing with suppliers. Everyone needs to learn faster by creating new knowledge in the work environment.
1: Yeah, thanks. And just uh, kind of building a little bit on your uh, description of, uh, you know, kind of fear or that these are abstract things. I, uh, just two, two or the failure component, two things. One is I, a friend of mine who runs a leadership coaching Company and one of one of the things she says a lot of people struggle with is that it it has to be more of a mindset that right it's ongoing and and comparisons to almost uh, a gym you you can't go work out really intensely once and then say you've you've worked out for the year right it has to be this ongoing process for it to really stick or have that positive impact and the other when you were talking about failure is. To get one of my close friends who, uh, you know, run runs a virology lab at the at the University of Iowa. So, any so he has some teaching responsibility. Most of it's on research, but you know, one of his challenges is always how do we how do we help PhD candidates and postdocs uh, want ask better questions, more interesting questions, and learn. And what we talk about too is just from our experience that the the times we've really learned something, most likely there was a failure that really brought it to it. Sometimes when we're, we're doing things and we're getting the right answers, we don't even necessarily know why we got the right answer. Right. So, but it, it has been when we failed and uh, you had mentioned extreme sports, the same person uh, he was a freestyle bike rider. Right. So like doing, and so it's sometimes it's really obvious when you fail, right. When you crash and you know, you, you know, something wasn't quite right, but then that, that ability too to like, pick yourself up and, uh, put a bandaid on and get back after it is, is a really, really interesting characteristic. So that this, this friend of mine is, is kind of like, he's always into how do we, how do we ask more interesting questions and yeah, creating that, uh, a safe to fail kind of space, right? You it's you, that as long as you're learning from it and going forward, it's not that we just want everybody to fail, but you do have to kind of pick yourself up. And I feel like there's another theme of resilience under there that. How do, how do we help individuals become more resilient? They faced an obstacle. Maybe they felt like they failed, but framing that as a learning opportunity, and then how do you do that at scale, right, for organizations or institutions? Uh, any other thought on how, how leaders can help make make it a less fear-based component for, for those in their charge?
0: Yeah, well, uh, that's... Uh focus of the book in part is what leaders can do. But I think a, a couple of things that I would highlight, one is uh, in this notion of failure, one of one interesting thing that at least one company has done is they've deployed um, experimentation platforms throughout their company. Every department has an experimentation platform. And again, it's not just research centers, it's every part of the organization. Where workers are encouraged to go and try out new approaches, and they can do it. We let it be yes, there will be failure, but the, the platform controls the risk of the failure. It's not going to bring the company down. Right. It's managing the risk. But the message is very clear to workers that we need you to, to experiment, and yes, failure is going to be part of that. So I think that's a, a pretty powerful message to send to the the workforce. Uh, the other one I, I just quickly will mention is um, I believe there is a huge transition for leadership and one way of representing it is the, the mark of a strong leader in the traditional organizations we have today is the one who has the answer to all the questions. No matter what question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. And By the way, if they don't have an answer, maybe it's time to get rid of them and find somebody who does have an answer to all the questions. I believe in a world of accelerating learning, the most effective leaders are gonna be the ones who have the most powerful questions that inspire people and excite people and where they will freely acknowledge, I don't have an answer and I need help. And it goes back to this notion of expressing vulnerability. It's first of all, communicating that questions are not only invited, but necessary and important. And that it's okay to ask for help, that you need to ask for help. We're coming together to address a really exciting question here. Let's do it. So.
1: Thank you, yeah. and and what I hear when you're describing to, sometimes looking at uh, what are either simple or tame problems, right or even complicated versus the complex problems we're facing is, if it's a tamer understood uh, that's actually where like a hierarchy or efficiency can make sense that somebody does understand that. But as we move into more complex environments, so it it seems like the role of the leader is again, inspire, uh, also the vulnerability say, I don't know, but let's find out that this is worth pursuing. And, uh, it's (laughs) like, hopefully like optimist, like, isn't it going to be exciting to find out? Like, let's, let's see how we might do that. Uh, and also providing some air cover for your your teams or staff to let you know the let them explore a little bit as well so so that they can learn uh i want to just uh, a little bit dig into because i feel like uh you know a, a while back to you 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 talked about pull right that uh, another uh, uh, the power of pull and it feels to me like your work is Refining and a further extension of the nature of of pull, and I, and I feel like maybe in the past ten years we've actually through this accelerated and and more connected world, we've seen that as being more more powerful. But if you don't mind, just kind of differentiating between push and pull, and why why pull, especially in systems, is so important.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's a, again a whole other book. So yeah, I encourage people to dive into it because I won't do it yeah. justice. But. But what I was trying to do, I, again, I, I, based on the research I've done, I believe we're in the early stages of what I call a big shift in the world in terms of how we run our institutions, run our lives. And one way of framing that, that change is from push to pull. If you look at the way most traditional institutions work today, it's all about developing a forecast of demand. And then pushing all the right people and resources into the right place at the right time to meet that demand—that's push. And, and push in marketing is how do you go out and intercept the people that you're trying to reach and, and, you know, control them so that you can push all your material and products to them. Pull on the other side, and, and part of the reason you know, push. I think was very efficient for over a century because we, to your point, we were in a more stable world where things could be forecast and predicted and you could push things. Um, Now in a more rapidly changing uncertain world, the key to success is harnessing the power of pull, which is how do you create environments where you can pull in the right people and resources when you need them, as you need them, to address unexpected situations. And so I think that that's, um, again, hugely challenging because it, it requires a fundamental change in all the way we organize and operate. But I think absolutely essential to, um, to creating impact. And, and by the way, I will say too that um, the, the opportunity here, if you harness the power of pull is to create exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create far more value with far less resource, far more quickly with pull-based mechanisms than we ever could with push. And so I think there's a huge opportunity ahead that really should motivate people to want to pursue this and overcome the fear of, you know, well, push has been what led us to our success in the past. We just need to keep pushing harder. Yeah, I
1: feel I feel what you're describing too. It what we see maybe when we start comparing and contrasting almost regenerative business or a eco- regenerative economy views versus an extractor view. Or uh, sometimes when I talk to Saul Kaplan, sometimes he'll talk about the difference between uh, share taker or market maker. But right? is that when we're doing what you're describing with moving beyond fear with the shift to pull? I feel like pragmatically, we could t- we're going to check all those boxes that that the the bean counters want. The the business is actually going to be bigger, better, safer in the long run, uh, and yeah, we'll hit your short term. But uh, we might have a quarter that's not great. Like we also have to, I think, trust a little bit that the the longer direction might take more than two quarters to get there. Right? Mm-hmm. I I do feel like we're so stuck on quarterly returns that that's also constraining us. John, I want to ask you too, is because the the, kind of as we're we're getting close to time, some of the things that I'd like to talk to guests about is their personal techniques if they feel stuck, uh, or you know, like you say and 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 you might say, well, here's here's all the ways I get unstuck. We've already talked about those with these, but uh, what are what are some of your personal techniques if you feel if you feel stuck on a particular topic or subject? What are your techniques for getting unstuck?
0: Well I think uh many many things uh, part of it is um a willingness to ask for advice to to ask others to give some input and ideas why why I'm stuck and what I can do about it, but part of it too is just viewing the this as an opportunity to learn you know rather than getting frustrated and afraid and you know, um is no. I'm stuck for a reason, let me find the reason, and that will help me to have even more impact over time. And so it's a it's this again drive to learn um, that I think really ultimately helps me to view getting stuck as not not a um, a terrible situation, but actually again a challenge in terms of how can I learn from this and, and achieve even more impact. So it's yeah. Uh,
1: Thank you. And this will flow kind of right into the, like the, the last topic I cover with guests is, is the notion of advice. And sometimes the, the themes, uh, tend to, it's, it's not that it's necessarily binary, but two, two different paths it seems to take. One is usually when we're younger and cockier, we, we, there's advice given to us from a mentor that almost sounds absurd at first. And then you realize as you get older that it was, was actually a pretty wise and elegant, uh, information payload in that package that they gave us. Uh or another is, and I steal this from Austin Cleon steal Like an Artist. We uh where he says when we're giving advice, we're we're really just talking to our younger self. Uh so what might be advice you wish you would have had early or what's some good advice you received from a, a, a mentor or helper in your journey?
0: Yeah, I'll just give a quick anecdote on that. I, I, this was I for a number of years, I was a partner at McKinsey & Company, a consulting firm. And um, very early in my partner, partner role, I was meeting with a very large company, one of the largest clients of McKinsey. They asked for a project, um, and I said, absolutely, we can do it. Let's do it and you know, send you the proposal. And I, in the meeting, there was a senior partner from McKinsey with me and he invited me out to dinner after the meeting and i thought it was to celebrate you know we won a huge new project and the meeting was actually the dinner was to tell me that i had done the wrong thing that in fact you know he asked first of all do you think this project is the right thing for the client i said well no probably not but he wants it so let me let me give it and we'll earn some good money and he said no If you want to be trusted, if you want to be a trusted advisor, you need to challenge the client. If the client's wrong, don't just sit there saying, yes, yes, yes. Say, no, this is wrong. Here's why, here's here's why, what should be doing instead. And that'll build trust. So it's this notion of building trust that is creating, is challenging people, not just sitting there saying, yes, 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 all the time. And so we had a meeting the following day where I went in and said, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I should not have accepted this request for a proposal because it's wrong for you. Here's what you should be doing. And I built huge trust with that executive, both because I was willing to express vulnerability to say I was wrong, but then to challenge him and say, you, you were wrong too, and you need to do this. And, and he's been forever grateful
1: oh that's I, I love it thank you for sharing that uh john it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast and and taking the time to to really walk through how we might move beyond fear and uh just thanks again for for taking the time
0: well thank you i appreciate the interest for sure.